Well, this is a particularly stunning venue, if I may say so myself, and obviously I'm slightly biased about this, but I do urge all of you, if you haven't had a chance already, to go up to the upper level of the viewing gallery and forget about the views for a few minutes and have a look at all the amazing structure above your heads um, and, and think of me while you do it. Um, so London will have about a million more people living here in the next six to seven years, which is quite a terrifying number. And also, if we think about what's happening in the world around us, the global trend is for people to move into cities. So by in about 30 years' time, we're going to have six billion people living in cities. You know, how are we going to accommodate that? How are we going to deal with that? And especially, how are we going to do it in a way in order to try and minimise the amount of effect and damage that we're having on our environment and on our planet. So if I look at a quite a big picture sort of view, then I think there are two different ways that this might play out. And I'm going to talk about two opposite extremes. So on one hand, you might have the situation where we as humans have to completely change our behaviour and therefore shrink the amount of effect we're having on our surroundings. So we travel less, we don't fly, we live close to where we work, we use less food, we you know, don't buy food that's been flown around the world, and so on. So we basically change our behaviour, we shrink ourselves and occupy less space as individuals. That's one side. And the other opposite extreme would be for us to continue as we are, to live our lives the way we are, enjoy it, have long showers in the mornings and so on. But on the other hand, we're forcing engineering and technology and science to do the shrinking for us. So we get technology, we get more um, you know, renewable sources of energy, we live in big houses, but we use our space more efficiently. So we're basically demanding that science and engineering forces, forces us to um, enjoy our lives in the way we can, but they're going to compensate for it instead. And I think as humans, we generally aspire to live a better life. And I expect that the reality will be somewhere in the middle of those two extremes. And when we think about London in particular, we talked a little bit about urban sprawl and densification. And my sort of personal opinion is that London has to get denser. That's the only way we can deal with this. I personally don't like commuting. I want to be able to get to and from work in under half an hour if possible. And the only way we can do that is to have a dense city where we can live and work and eat and so on without having to commute from the suburbs for hours on end. And so I want to talk about how we as engineers can provide a solution to the problem of how do we densify London, you know, which is already a very, very dense sort of city. So I want to talk about three separate points. And I'll start off with um, skyscrapers, which is um, often quite a controversial subject. But if we, for a moment, accept that if skyscrapers are well-designed and well-placed, and they think about, you know, they're designed in a way that thinks about the people that will occupy them, let's say that this is a good idea. So how is the engineering going to get us there? So we have started already trying to push the limits of what's possible with design and analysis as engineers. We can see that the geometry of buildings is getting more and more complicated. I mean, this is one of 
the great examples of complicated geometry, not a single two floors in this entire building are the same. So we had to do drawings for every single level, which was good fun. Um, and we did it in 2D as well. We didn't actually model this building in 3D because the technology just wasn't quite there when we started. So I want to talk about a few different examples of things that we do in skyscrapers. So the first one's materials. So we, in the shard, for example, made a decision that we're going to alternate between steel and concrete. And that's not really done. It hasn't ever been done in a skyscraper in the UK before. So we have concrete foundations. We then move to steel office floors because steel beams can span big, long distances. You can put all your air conditioning ducts between the beams, and it's perfect for an office. When you go up into the apartments and the hotels, however, we switch back to concrete because concrete has better thermal properties, so it keeps the flats warmer. It's got better acoustic properties, so you don't get noise transmission between apartments and hotels. And you have far fewer services running around in the ceilings, so you can fit it that way. And so what we managed to do by changing material was to thin down the amount of structure we have and actually add an extra two floors into the building. So that's a very simple thing that we did in order to try and maximise the space. And that's using materials we know about already. But if we think about other materials, future materials, basically the lighter and stronger they are, the more efficient they will be. And the more lighter and efficient um, materials that we use, we're going to make the foundations lighter because you won't have to take so much weight and so on. And so carbon fibre seems to be the way forward. Graphene um, is very interesting material because it's one atom thick. It's the strongest sort of known material to man. And when we will someday be building my dream lift to the moon, that will probably be built out of graphene. So that's something I hope to see in my lifetime. Maybe a little bit optimistic, but we'll see. Another aspect that um, almost limits or dictates skyscrapers are the lifts. So we couldn't actually, we didn't build skyscrapers until the lift was invented. Because how are you going to get people up and down? So in Roman times, the poorest people lived at the top of the you know, 10-story buildings that the Romans built. And the richest people used to live at the base. But actually now, the trend has become the opposite. But buildings sway and move. And lifts need to go through straight shafts. So that's one challenge. And also, the longer the lifts become, the heavier the actual cables that hold them up are. And so the tallest lifts that you tend to see are about 500 metres, which is obviously taller than this building, but it's not taller than the tallest building, so that's why you often have to change lifts when you go up um, tall buildings. So it's, it's not something I immediately thought about, that lifts can actually dictate how tall buildings work, but it's true. And what about the human aspect of it? So we're all up here today, and this building sways like any other, and in a strong wind... It'll probably move about half a metre, so about that much, which actually for a building of this height is not, not a lot. But what we make sure of is no matter how much the building might move, you shouldn't feel seasick. And it is possible for, for people to feel seasick in tall buildings if they sway too quickly. So we have all these complicated analysis tools that we can now use in order to ensure that that's not the case. Safety. How do you get all the people out of the building in the case of emergencies? So that's a huge, huge consideration for us as well. 
And again, we're coming up with different ways in which this can be done. And actually, in some skyscrapers now, we're starting to use lifts as part of the escape strategy. So in fact, not saying, do not use the lift as a fire, because we've put the lift in a big, massive concrete core that protects it, get in the lifts, you'll get out quicker. So we're starting to actually change the way we think about fire safety as well. And how do you build it? So the spire, if you have a look upstairs, was built like a giant Meccano set. So we actually split the building up into modules, and then each module was prefabricated in a factory. We put it in a truck, came down to London, crane lifts it up, we bolted it all together, literally like you'd put a Meccano set together. So we have to really start to think about how we're going to build you know, super tall buildings. Would you actually have construction crews living at the top of the building while it's being built, a bit like you do in the North Sea oil rigs, for example. So this is another very, very interesting consideration. You can design the tall building, but you have to build it as well. So that's another great um, challenge for us. The second one I wanted to talk a little bit about is what we call brownfield sites. And that refers to the land which isn't obviously lovely to put buildings on. So if you think about when you sit on a train and, say, go towards East London, you'll actually see there's a lot of derelict land around you. And we should be using that land. The problem is, of course, you'll be living on top of or right next to trains. And that doesn't immediately sound very appealing. I mean, I lived next to some train lines in Mile End for about a year. And it, I actually got used to it quite quickly, but it's not ideal when the building kind of rumbles every time a train goes past. So I'm actually working on a couple of sites at the moment where we've actually got a train going through a building because there's a train there, but there's all this land and we want to build on it, which I think is a great idea. So what do we do about that? We can have better facade systems, so the, kind of, so the shard, not on these levels, but lower down have triple glazed windows. We're double glazed here, so you can improve noise um, and vibration transmission through that. You can even put anti-vibration pads at the base of buildings. Now, for a structural engineer, this is absolutely terrifying because what I'm doing on my building is having this big, huge structure coming down and then at ground level, you essentially are chopping the structure and putting little plastic pads in at the base of the column so that when the train underneath vibrates, these little pads absorb that vibration and it doesn't transmit its way up the building. So we're starting to do that now, which I think is really interesting. So again, trying to make the human experience of living above and around trains a little bit more palatable. However, the new trains which are being built at the moment also have these pads under the actual tracks. So once you've done that, then you don't need to do it to a building, which is a solution I'm much happier with personally. But we have lots of existing trains we need to work with in London. So I think that's another area that we could look at in London. And the last one I want to talk about is changing the use of buildings, using our existing buildings more efficiently and redeveloping some of our existing buildings. And you know, this definitely doesn't mean out with the old and with the new, because I don't believe that. I, you know, we should protect our heritage, but we also need to provide 40,000 homes in London every year. And we're, we're failing that target by 12,000 every year. So we're, you know, we're just in for a massive housing crisis if we're not in the midst of it already. So some ideas I mean, we, that we can see already is that you're starting to see hospitals being used as apartments. 
you know, converted. Um, you've seen office buildings being switched into buildings to, that you can live in and, and so on. So again, as engineers, we can design the buildings such that their usage can be changed. And again, by using the right materials and having as few columns as possible so that the space is very flexible inside the building. Um, you can retain facades. So the office building that I actually work in is a brand new steel building, but it's got this beautiful heritage facade that was built, I think, in the sort of early 1900s. So we held all of that up, demolished everything behind that because that building was not performing, put a new building in, but we've still preserved a bit of heritage around us, which is nice. We've also been doing a couple of different studies at WSP where I work, and there's two interesting ones that I wanted to mention. So one was about building rafts above railways, so this kind of comes back to what I was talking about before, but we're actually looking at how we can essentially build buildings and terraces and almost you know, areas of city on above train lines. So you know, we might have HS2 in a few years, how can we really use this, the airspace above that for you know, space? Let's, let's create space from space we thought wasn't there before. And another interesting study we've been doing with UCL is around the public buildings that we have, which are often aging. There's often not enough money to do them up and, and maintain them and keep them fit for purpose. So, for example, you might have a small police station somewhere. And what we're looking at is if you knock down that police station, allowed a private developer to build homes above it and then gave the police their station back, which is a much more modern building with you know, great facilities and actually fit for purpose. So we're looking at how we might, again, how many more homes and things we can create that way. Um, and in fact, we've also published this report, which is called um, Delivering the London 2020 Vision, which is um, related to Boris's plans for London. And that's available on our website, or you can ask me about it later, which also talks about a lot of these different techniques that we're basically enabling with really clever engineering. So hopefully I've given you a bit of a flavour of really the engineering challenges and, and techniques that we might be able to use in the future to try and create space from nothing, to try and make London a little bit denser, but while preserving a bit of heritage and making sure that we as people actually enjoy the buildings that we live in. Thank you very much.